you're joining All Things College and Career for in-depth stories and advice with your hosts, Meg Gary and Bobby Ryan, owners of Academic and Career Advising Services. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Season 3 of All Things College and Career. So happy you guys are here. Hey, today we have an amazing guest, Dr. Michelle Weiss. She is an impressive person. Our intro on her is not going to be short. We'll warn you right now, but it's all worth mentioning and you're going to want to hear it. She knows what's up. But before that, we want you to know what you will get from this podcast today. We are going to talk about how to navigate in the ever-changing work environment, the problems we are facing in this environment, what needs to change, and where you can get help right now to move your career ahead without spending any money and with minimal impact to your already busy life. But now let's get to why Michelle knows what's up. Okay, I'll start it from here. We were so excited to have Michelle on. She is the author of a new book called Long Life Learning, Preparing for Jobs That Don't Even Exist Yet. So all about the future of work. Thinkers 50 named her one of 30 management and leadership thinkers in the world to watch in 2021. I mean, come on. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> her work over the last decade has concentrated on preparing working aged adults for the jobs of today and tomorrow. She was a chief innovation officer at Strata Education Network's Institute for the Future of Work and Sandbox Collaborative, the Innovation Center of Southern New Hampshire University, right in our backyard. With Clayton Christensen, she authored Higher Education, Mastery, Modularization, and the Workforce Revolution. That was in 2014. While leading the higher education practice at Christensen's Institute for Disruptive Innovation. Okay, so Dr. Weiss also advises BrightHive, a data collaboration platform. She has recently gone from advising the Institute of Higher Education Policy to becoming a member of the board, which is amazing. Amazing. She also advises the Skill Up Coalition, Strategic Education Incorporated, Higher Board, HIT, MIT Solve, Village Capital, Western Governors University Teachers College, Clayton Christensen Institute, Social Capital Research and Development Project, and World Education Personal and Workplace Success Skills Library. She has also served as a commissioner for the Massachusetts Governor Baker's Commission on Digital Innovation and Lifelong Learning, Harvard University's Task Force on Skills and Employability, and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences Commission on the Future of Undergraduate Education. Holy moly. Okay. (laughs) I know. Her breath. Her commentaries on redesigning higher education and developing more innovative workforce and talent pipeline strategies have been featured in The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Harvard Business Review, and on a PBS NewsHour. Yep. And Michelle is also, if that isn't enough, people, Michelle is also a formal Fulbright scholar, go figure, and a graduate of Harvard and Stanford. So, so there you my have it. Gosh, so there you have it. That's it. Another slacker on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So without further ado, let's get right to our conversation with Dr. Michelle Weiss. Hello, Michelle Weiss. Welcome to All Things College and Career. Thank you so much for doing our podcast today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. 
I'm Michelle. Thanks for being here. We are super excited to talk to you today and get right into all the details of your book. So I want to keep wanting to say lifelong learning, but it's long life learning and preparing for jobs that don't even exist yet. Both Meg and I read the book and loved it. We think it's important work and we think everybody should read it. Anybody that's looking for a career or changing careers should read it. So where are we talking to you from today? I am based in Andover, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. Okay. Great. So you get in the snow too? (laughs) Oh, yes. Are you guys in Massachusetts too or? Well, we're in like the Seacoast, Maine area. Oh, nice. Yes. We have a good... 18 to 24 inches on our lawn. (laughs) Yeah. I think you guys got more than us in the last storm, but hey, we'll take it. So let's dive right into your book and some of the things that I pulled out, some things that interested me personally. So one of the first things is after the 2008 financial crisis, workers were displaced and were really unable to recover while the top 1% captured 85% of the income growth following the recession. Why do you think this is? Oh, I mean, I think we have a lot of different things going on, which is prior to, you know, even even since the 1970s, we've had this kind of major shift in how we think about post-secondary credentials. And I think what we sometimes forget is back in the 1970s, as an example, only 30% of our population would actually go on from high school to college. Mm-hmm. And so that's signaling factor of a degree just was quite powerful, right? Like if you actually persisted and made it through and got a degree, it differentiated you from other people. But at the same time, folks who had only a high school degree could actually earn a very comfortable living and lifestyle uh, with just that high school degree. Just We just had a different set of industries and, and different kinds of skills that were needed for the labor market. Now that we've kind of shifted into this knowledge economy and employers have gotten more and more used to depending on the degree as some sort of proxy for talent, we've seen this kind of widening divide over time. And we've seen wages stagnate for people who only have a high school degree, whereas for those who have actually achieved and moved forward with that post-secondary credential, the earnings outcomes are just kind of just better in general. And so we've had this deep and widening divide over time. We've had this huge disinvestment from training, from employers actually putting and building in the skills that they need inside their kind of internal workforce. So it's a a lot of different vectors and it's just this kind of perfect storm of a lot of problems kind of coming to a head. And and it just keeps getting worse over time, even with this pandemic as an example. Yeah. And, and the thing is, it's like you said, 30% of people used to come out and get a college degree. Now that's gone way up, but also degrees are requiring higher levels of degrees now. So what used to exactly. be a bachelor's is now a master's. And so the bar keeps seeming to go up. Um, yeah, the goalposts keep moving, right? Yeah, like, the goalposts yeah. keep moving. Yeah, and it's crazy because some of these things that are asking for master's degrees I know, are things that never required a bachelor's degree in the first place. It's this up-credentialing phenomenon. Right, and so is that because they actually need more skills or because they just need a bigger differentiator because now everyone's getting degrees? Yeah, so part of it is we have this huge explosion of universities and the number of credentials out there in the market. So if you look at the 1950s, as an example, we had less than 2,000, fewer than 2,000 institutions, blew up to 4,700 by 2012. 
Now mm-hmm. we're at about 4,300, you know, degree granting institutions. On top of that, we have over 738,000 unique credentials out there in the education and labor markets. And we're just flooded with all these different signals. And most hiring managers have no idea how to make sense of these different signals. They can't even tell the difference between real and fake degrees or real and fake universities. It's mm. So part of it is like, it's a fuzzier proxy for talent. So they keep trying to get more specific. Okay, we're not getting the talent that we need out of bachelor's degree candidates. We may need more skilled talent. But part of it is when we actually think about college degrees today and the way in which the outcome of it is maybe a transcript, no employer actually knows what a learner can do Mm. with that knowledge, with a B minus in civilization, Western civilization, or an A in you know, sociology, they don't know actually how that translates into marketable skills in the labor market. So we have this linguistic barrier. um, And I think that's why you see, I don't think we're going to kind of see this continue where we're going to, you know, ask for just more and more advanced degrees because it's not working, right? (laughs) Right. And you can't start asking for PhDs. Um, So there's an end to that road, but it's also how do we get more granular and specific about the skills that people have and help them articulate those skills and translate those skills for employers and employers to be much more articulate about what precisely they need for the jobs ahead. Mm -hmm. So how do you recommend we do that? Do you envision a centralized system or some way that employers know for sure this person has the skill set and the person pursuing that a degree or certification knows they'll have a they will have a job at the end. It seems like there needs to be a meeting there. So you saw this back about five years ago when there was kind of this real rush and excitement around competency-based education because people were realizing, okay, how do these competencies actually turn knowledge into what people can do? So the you know competency statements are pretty much just can-do statements. This person can evaluate multiple pieces of information and create a research-based argument, right? What happened was, though, this is back in 2014, and Clayton Christensen and I wrote a, a a short book on the potential here when we align online competency-based education to workforce needs. The problem is that when universities started to realize, oh, there's this exciting new thing called CBE, what they started to do was each university and college started to build their own set of competencies Mm. that maybe meant the same thing, but did not translate outside of their institution. So (laughs) instead of kind of building toward that shared agenda, that shared commons or a repository or some sort of shared taxonomy, everyone was kind of building in parallel and in silos. Now what we see is a lot of universities realizing, okay, that's clearly not going to work for the future. It's not going to help employers make sense of this. So you see interesting kinds of efforts around building like an open skills taxonomy. So that's one exciting opportunity. If we can kind of get some shared ways of describing these skills, being very nuanced about those skills, and also standardizing the way that we post for jobs. Mm. Pretty much today, you can create any sort of job description you want. There's no, there's just no commonality. There's no standardization of when we use this skill, this is what we mean. So there's really interesting kinds of like efforts out of the jobs data exchange that's being facilitated by the Chamber of Commerce Foundation as an example, where they're trying to do some of that work. 
So we're seeing kind of the early movements and efforts to start to do that just from an infrastructure side, get clear. But in the meantime, while we don't necessarily all have access to that taxonomy, there are really, you know, if, if we're thinking about your audience in particular here and we think about career counselors, there's a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of work to do in terms of preparing our learners to translate those skills and give them the language to articulate and clearly demonstrate to employers that they have the skills that those companies need. I see that benefit firsthand and people are just so relieved to have help and guidance and support through the process. And I think it's really underestimated how vital it is. I was so thrilled to see it in your book as an important ingredient that career coaching or career counseling support that you get through this process is huge. Yeah, it seems so intuitive and simple, right? Right. (laughs) To be able to help with the translation process, but especially for first-gen learners or folks who haven't had access to the same sorts of social capital networks or professional networking kind of connections. It's this tacit thing that, that we learn over time of how you take things, even that seemingly you know, maybe you might underestimate as important to an employer, but learn how to say, yes, I worked at Target, but translate those skills to make it just as phenomenal and interesting as someone else who maybe interned at a hedge fund or an investment firm, right? There are ways of doing this to say like, I managed a team of 24 people and I worked 40 hours a week, right? They're they're kind of very specific numbers you can use and, and they're these little, right? But yeah, you make such a great point. Their access to negotiating the whole system is just, they're paralyzed by it. Yeah, so how do we make those implicit biases more explicit for our learners so that they understand like how they navigate this unfairly rigged system, unfortunately, right? Yeah. So back to your point about going back to the degrees and what you need and and the skill set. So instead of creating more degrees or needing higher degree levels, it sounds to me like instead of getting a degree in computer science, and I think you wrote about this in your book, especially if you're focusing on a certain area like DC versus St. Louis, instead of getting a degree in computer science. So now it's like, okay, these are the skills that I've learned in college under my computer science degree that are directly applicable to these companies in DC, if that's where you want to be or, or another town. sounds like that is the solution to, instead of just inquiring more time in college to just really narrow in on what skills you can produce while you're in college that it can be directly applicable to the job market. Yeah, it's interesting that you use like computer science as an example, because when coding boot camps first started to come out and kind of gain some traction, what was fascinating if you talk to the CEOs of all these different boot camps was that a lot of the learners who were coming for coding were computer science majors in, right. you know, who had graduated from college. They who didn't actually, their, yeah. yeah, they had the theory. They didn't have any of the practical knowledge to actually put it into practice. Mm-hmm. And that's like a clear signal uh, in that particular discipline of how we need to actually engage and and build problem solvers earlier on so that people aren't tacking an extra $20,000 learning experience on top of a degree. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more broad, you know, the, the, the implications are broader than that, which is for the future of work, we are all going to have to be 
very skilled problem solvers and systems thinkers. And that really does require a different approach on the part of higher ed institutions in cultivating those kinds of learners. Because as much as we believe that we are doing that on the academic side, we still teach very much in silos and, you know, across, you know, in departments. integration. Yeah. Yep. We talk about interdisciplinarity, but we don't actually teach our learners how to take multiple concepts or understand the deep structural connections between those disciplines. Which is huge. That's, it's that was- huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have read um, David Epstein's book, Range. Um, I know. Yeah. Oh, it's phenomenal. It, it it talks about this kind of analogical thinking that that needs to occur where you know, he, he had followed a, a research scientist, I think at Northwestern, and they were trying to do this test on the undergraduates to see how these learners made connections across disciplines. And there were very like shallow ways in which most of the learners could actually connect different ideas together from like a topical level, mm-hmm. but only a few sort of select learners could actually understand that actually these, you know, four different things, these four different cards that they were looking at had this really interesting connection mm. with the other kind of things in that in that group. And the only people who could do that were the ones who were in deeply dis- interdisciplinary programs who were learning that practice. It, it's And it's not necessarily something that is incentivized or promoted within the university setting, right? Mm. When yeah. people are co-teaching classes, it's not a good thing, right? You're, it's highly individualized, the achievement and promotion processes within a university. So that act of collaboration and synthesis and range and analogical thinking, first of all, doesn't, it, it doesn't get prioritized for the faculty. And so, of, of course, it's not kind of trickling down to the learners too. And we haven't fundamentally kind of undone the way that we deliver content to build those problem solvers. So- that computer science idea is just like emblematic of this larger structural problem. Yeah. So if you had a magic wand and could wave it over higher ed, what would you recommend they do to change? That would be one, I guess. Yeah, that's that's the biggest thing because it's actually within the bounds of what is possible to transform. Certain things that are aspirational are deeply nearly impossible sometimes as we think about things like disruptive innovations. It's it's almost impossible given sort of the cultural constraints, given the sort of business model constraints of a university. So it's hard to kind of say like, oh, if I could have my druthers, I would do this. But within the confines of what a university can do, this is well within reach. The challenge, of course, is from an incentive level for universities, right? And we think about accreditation. It's really hard to build some of these new innovative solutions that would better serve our learners that function outside the credit hour. So we have a fundamental kind of issue when we're always having to kind of connect to our credit hour system, right? Which is measuring how much time we sit somewhere as if that is a proxy for learning. And then that's connected to Title IV dollars in funding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even when you saw universities trying to experiment with competency-based education, instead of having 120 credits, we just had 120 competencies <laughs> because we were trying to like squeeze the same, yeah. a new thing into the old light bulb socket, right? Yeah. So it's hard. It is substantial, the challenges ahead, but I do think it's critical, you know, especially as 
more and more universities are going to find themselves in financial duress because of this pandemic, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So how do they kind of define themselves and create some sort of competitive edge? I think it is about building these problem solvers in new and transformative ways. So you write in your book, and I find all this, I find so many things interesting, but I love how you wrote that we're going to have to be lifelong learners, that we need to get into the work, learn, work, learn pattern, or work and learn, or (laughs) however you want to say it. And that also that we're living longer. And you pointed out in your book that people that are going to live to 150 have already been born. That kind of just blew me away just to think about that. So because of that, universities have to hopefully get involved in this, workplaces, Every everyone from different facets and levels are going to have to get involved in order to make this doable for people. And I love so many of your stories in the book. Her book has a ton of great stories showing examples of people that are struggling with this, how, you know, you're a mom with kids or you're a dad with kids and you already have a full-time job and probably maybe even a part-time job too to keep paying the bills. You, you barely have time, you know, to grab a shower. How am I going to go back to school? <laughs> So, so many of these great topics are there. And I think the question is, how do we become lifelong learners and how do, how do we find time for that? Yeah. For how me, do we afford it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Meg, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly it is. I found it so helpful, even, even if it's hard to fathom and even if there's this kind of like great repulsion, right? Of like, oh my God, 150 years. Like, I don't want to live 150 I don't want to work that long. (laughs) Right. I don't want to work a hundred years. There's this, this is kind of like real, right? right? Real revulsion that kind of emerges. But I found it such a hugely helpful mental model to just sort of snap me out of attention, you know, just snap me out of that kind of inertia and paralysis of hearing all the different kinds of statistics flying around the future of work. But to really start to figure out, okay, what does a life, a work life that's going to last a hundred years look and feel like, right? Yeah. And if we just think about today, how hard it is to navigate a single job change, mm-hmm. how in the world will we do this 20 or 30 times over? And the reason why it's easy to extrapolate just to those numbers is early baby boomers today are already having an average of 12 job changes by the time they retire. So for the rest of us who still have to remain in the workforce, we can only kind of bump that up at least to 20, right? We can, it's easily imaginable, even if we don't believe that we'll live to be 150 years old. As we think about how we navigate, how we fund that, how we how we make this easier for ourselves. My real focus here and the focus on those learners that you allude to is let's just stop thinking about work and think about workers and the fact that actually all of us are going to have to be these working learners, somehow juggling working and learning because two, four year degree on the front end of a hundred year life, it just seems insufficient right? Or inadequate to sustain us, especially as technology is changing so rapidly. So how do we, first of all, home in on the pain points that people are just coming up against today? And my lens is trying to think about the bottom quartile of our labor market, people with only a high school degree who are not earning a living wage and, and, and trying to surface the constraints and barriers and obstacles that are getting in the way of their advancement. And so it's really important for me to just 
elevate their voices because then it becomes quite clear how the problems seem to coalesce around career navigation, wraparound support services, more precise educational opportunities, and more integrated learning opportunities while they're earning a living, and then more fair and transparent hiring practices. That's where so many of these deep, in, you know, in-depth interviews kind of led is, oh my gosh, all the conversations keep revolving around these five main principles that we need to solve for. And that's what you get into in the second part of your book. You make which we will do one of definitely. Yep. Yeah. You make the point that people with just high school degrees or less are facing more and more challenges. Their situation's getting worse. And the college degree is not really a measure of whether you can do the job, but it's the only benchmark that employers have at this point. So how can we resolve all that? Yeah. Even today, right, as we look at the effects of the pandemic, the top 10%, they've actually kind of almost improved their positions from, yeah. from the pandemic. And of mm-hmm. course, it just is this, this huge widening inequality is just getting worse for the people at the bottom, right? We know the epidemic and all of these calls for uh, racial justice, all of these things have been affecting black and brown communities more, not only in terms of economic security, but just physical well-being, right? The people who are being physically hurt the most from this pandemic are the people who were already being left behind in the first place. So the real question is like, how do we enable these learners and workers to actually have a fair shot in the labor market? Because if a company were actually to look at their frontline workers or their call center workers or, you know, or just the people in their region who only have a high school degree who they would normally overlook, but if they just invested a little bit in skilling up that talent around them, it would hugely diversify their talent pools, mm-hmm. right? We always are hearing employers struggling with how do we diversify our workforce? This is one way when you strip away that degree requirement, you automatically make the talent funnel less white and yeah. less male. And right? did Google just strip away the degree requirements? There's Yes, there are a few. studying their employees that Yep, that it was kind of not a useful marker of of their ability. It is definitely easier, though, for IT companies to move in that direction than it is for other uh, other industries. Seeing that a lot with IT companies, they value whether you have the skill way over if you have the degree. Yep, and you make a great point that companies aren't investing; they have employees that are sixty or seventy percent of the way there, but they'd rather go out and hire somebody new. That why aren't they upskilling their current workforce? Part of it is they have no idea what their current workforce can do. They don't actually so have... that seems like a big problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is a really big problem. It is, and it's phenomenal, actually, when you talk to even some of the big five tech companies, when they're bringing in outside vendors, they will tell them, because this I've heard this from, you know, the entrepreneurs who are helping them, these companies actually know that they have maybe... 100 or 500,000 workers. They know their names and they know their job titles, but they don't actually know what capabilities they have, you know, at that very granular level. It seems like we need a centralized database on everybody, what they can do or what what their abilities are that translates to work. So that is where AI actually has a real positive role to play. And so some of the companies that I feature in the book are trying to help job seekers 
you know, leveraging AI as someone is typing in a word, it can actually surface competencies for them. So to say like, oh, did you know that other people who are baristas have these competencies? And so it helps the job seeker. And we have to admit, like, we are not great at articulating our own skills, right? Especially our hidden credentials that we gain from life experience, from caregiving responsibilities. So it helps with that kind of generation of, no, I actually have a whole slew of skills to bring to the table. Yeah. And then for the employer, it helps them understand, oh my goodness, you know, we could actually take this 20% of people and skill them up because they're almost there, right? We just need to get them some learning pathways that would give them these five or seven skills. And we're there to some of these roles for the future. And some of these entrepreneurs have actually been brought into one in particular uh, told me that he he came into a Fortune 500 company that had just laid off a, a ton of people because they had created these new strategic goals for the future. And they knew that their workforce, or they assumed that their workforce was not fit for that future. Mm. But when he actually ran the profiles of the people that they had laid off through his platform, he could actually say with great clarity, you shouldn't have fired these 20 people, right? Yeah. Uh, because they were nearly there. And wow. so there's this incredible waste and churn in our market today. And we don't keep track and measure any of it. So we don't even have a clear understanding of how wasteful our current recruitment processes are. Okay. So for companies, it sounds like it's easier just to hire someone new in because they've just given me a list of their credentials. It's right here. And yet this is what I'm looking for. It's almost like internally, these companies should keep their each employee's resume or whatever updated so they know what their skill sets are internally. I don't know. Yep. So some of these smarter companies are doing that. They're starting yeah. to realize we need to get a better sense of what our talent or what our people can do. Right. And we need to become so much clearer and more transparent for our people who work for us today on how you advance. Because you know, when you go move into a company, it's very unclear what the route is to the next level and the next level. We don't create those internal mobility pathways. So that's critical is how do we, in order to avoid all that waste and churn, how do we make this easier and accessible to people? Right. And along with that, of course, goes with how do we update their skills internally? How do we educate them without having them to make it in addition to their already long work day? Because, you know, they exactly. have stuff going at home. So where are companies with that thinking like, okay, we're going to lose four man hours of this person working on Tuesdays and Thursdays so we can upskill them, but the payoff is X, Y, Z. I mean, are are they prepared to do that or are you finding companies are starting to be prepared to do that? No, they are absolutely not prepared to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That is the fundamental constraint. It is, you know, you guys were talking about uh, funding long life learning more than even the cost of funding long life learning, the more precious resource that we have to solve for is time. Mm. Because, and I think the pandemic illustrates this perfectly, buying time is something that only a select few can do, right? We can outsource certain things in order to gain back time. But as we think about the people who really need opportunities to advance, they cannot afford to pay for that kind of time. And they don't have just endless amounts of time off to reskill. And so even with some of the most interesting and heavily funded company-led initiatives, they have not figured out how to carve out time in the flow of the workday 
so that any person can actually skill up while earning a living instead of saying, hey, go do this on your own with these tuition reimbursement dollars, right? Figure it out on your own on top of everything else going on in your life. But they don't, they can't. They're running around doing two and three jobs. Exactly. Together a living and, you know, taking care of a house and kids. It just seems insurmountable. The AI companies you mentioned were inspiring and exciting. But again, it seems like a lot of separate silos mm-hmm. that, you know, they're not talking to each other or integrating. Yeah. <laughs> so there seems to be a big miss there. But I was wondering if you could list maybe a university that you think is doing it right or companies that are doing it right. If somebody that maybe people could look to as a role model of how to solve some of these issues. And we will be right back with that answer from Michelle right after this. Thank you, Bobby. I just wanted to quickly break in here to share. I am now an FCD instructor. So if you would like to become a certified career counselor through the NCDA, I can now make that happen for you. I also offer career coaching and academic advising. To learn more about any of these services, please visit my website, Academic and Career Advising Services. I will include that link in the show notes. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, there are a few that I would just sort of point to. I mean, one that's kind of a fascinating model is BYU Pathway, actually. They have this interesting kind of job certificate first approach where they are intent on skilling up someone so that they can attain a certificate that means something immediately in the labor market. So getting someone to become a diesel mechanic, you know, which pays $80,000 a year that just launches that person into a more comfortable lifestyle where they're not in that sort of mental mindset of having to survive, right? They they can kind of think about how they move forward. What they have found is by providing these different pathways to good opportunities that have great earnings, it's been the most important retention program for them where the people who get that first job or that first good job Uh, they realize, oh my gosh, education really does pay off. I'm going to continue. I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to try to get a degree. Instead of just sort of taking a degree and chopping chopping it up into small pieces, it required a, a real sort of rejiggering of the curriculum development and the approach and also the mindset shift for the faculty. So I think that was kind of like a a lovely thing to see. The other part of this is, you know, and it's almost maybe not so helpful when I mention like a huge company like Walmart, but the nice thing, because most of our businesses that make up our economy are small and medium-sized businesses where they don't even have maybe an HR department. But it is fascinating to see when a company like Walmart, because they're forced into a situation where any change that they're trying to implement means they have to quickly skill up a million people at once. It has forced them to leverage AR and VR through these different kinds of headsets or tablet-based learning where they're quickly trying to build those skills in a five-minute module that the person can then practice on the warehouse floor. So it is this kind of, how do we make this as experiential as possible. But again, like that's that's a huge enterprise uh, yeah. like Walmart. But to your point about these solutions exist, but they're siloed. That is the thing that I just wanted to highlight with my book is to say, we don't have to blow up the system. We don't have to start from scratch because when you actually look at all of these different principles that we need to solve for around 
career navigation or wraparound support services or more precise educational opportunities, we see all the glimmers of hope that are out there. We can see and I can point you to all the different kinds of innovations that exist. But to your point, they are not knit together in service of the job seeker, right? If you were to take any job seeker off the side of the sidewalk and ask them how they're going to navigate their job change, they probably don't know about the existence of most of the solutions I'm talking about in the book, right? And that's a problem. That's a real problem. Right. And just reading your book and we're in the field we're in and a lot of those solutions were new to us as well. So it's not just important for people that haven't had any career experience, but for just for all of us. That's why I said everyone should read this book, because I think (laughs) it hits all of us can learn from this book for sure. So I feel like we should get into your five guiding principles for a new learning ecosystem. And I, I know we've been touching on that as we've been going through this conversation or aspects of it, but maybe you could just quickly run through those five and then we can start talking about how those can be implemented. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty simple. When I talk about a new learning ecosystem, it is breaking down those silos and designing something that is fundamentally more navigable. It's more supported. It's more targeted. It is more integrated and it is more fair. So you know, a better ecosystem means that we have better career navigation that helps us understand what skills we bring to the table, what gaps exist, how do we fill them? It also connects us to the support services we need. For some people, those are more substantial in terms of mental health counseling or formerly incarcerated adults trying to navigate a new public benefit system. Um, There are different kinds of support services we need as working adult learners, right? Right. Um, And we need human touch points as well. We need to feel connected and feel like we can trust someone who advises us along the way. And then the sort of more precision learning, we don't always need a one-year certificate or a two or four-year degree. Going back to school is hard enough to fathom as it is. How do we how do we think about more precise educational opportunities that give us exactly what we need so we can move on? And then how do we make sure that employers embed those opportunities while we are earning a living? So it's this idea of integrated earning and learning. And how do we get to fairer skills-based hiring practices that are more transparent and obvious for for all of us who are trying to navigate. So it's those kind of five areas. Yeah. Under your supportive chapter in your book, I love that story about the Uber drivers. I thought that was so cool. So for our audience, you know, the the story was, I probably should let you tell it, Michelle, but how I remember it is the story was they just started kind of like a blog where Uber drivers started joining and just things like, how do I get into Uber Eats? Because they're not a community. They work by themselves. Uber drivers work by themselves. So they, in this one local area, they developed a community and it made it very helpful for everybody else, like that wraparound support that you talk about in your book. Yeah, exactly. Like that peer-to-peer support is huge. And that particular platform that they were leveraging was this group called Jobcase or a company called yeah. Jobcase, mm-hmm. where it's this community building uh, site where folks who are kind of in more of what we would kind of call like working class you know, the blue collar trades, they're trading secrets and connections. Yeah. And they're also deeply connected in terms of, it's not one of those traditional kind of forums where people get very cruel very quickly. It yeah. is actually very supportive where, you know, these these job candidates are never hearing back from a, an employer and they're comforting one another and they're giving each other tips and hints on 
on how to navigate. And then that particular situation, they were able to um, help out, you know, this poor Uber driver who was losing money, you know, over an eight day period to get him back installed. It was almost like the new formation of a labor union, which was kind of fascinating to see. Modern day. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Love that. Also, you mentioned some programs where you can learn first and pay afterwards once you're sort of obtained the degree. Would you encourage more of that to colleges, universities? Or, I mean, that seems like uh, solving a big problem, just affordability. Yeah. It is this idea of institutions getting more skin in the game yes. right now. Oh, definitely. All, they need right? more skin in the game. Yeah. If institutions really believe in the outcomes of their programs, they should be willing to make a bet that their learners could pay off their debt or their tuition afterwards, right? That the outcomes of their learning would manifest in a way that these learners could pay that tuition back. So different kinds of tuition deferred programs, income share agreements, but definitely I do believe it's important for the risk burden to be shared more equally. Right now, all of the risk is on the individual. It's on the individual to understand whether this learning pathway is the right one and all of the debt burden is on them, right? So not only institutions, but employers too need to get some skin in the game here. They need to reinvest in their existing workforce. They need to carve out time. They need to hurt a little in terms of day-to-day productivity for that long-term competitive advantage. And so, yes, it's really interesting to see these different kinds of, you know, a lot of them are based on the concept of an income share agreement, but because there's not a lot of legal, both at the state and federal level clarity around what an income share agreement can or cannot do. Some of them are kind of reformatting them into career impact bonds or tuition deferred programs. But the the idea is similar, which is we bet on the outcomes of our learners who graduate from these programs. Love that. Yeah. And can you even imagine, okay, let's picture some prestigious university decides to do this, right? This is, I mean, this would change the competition field in the university system. And you got to think about it. It's like, well, I want to go there not only because it's a great university, but because they're betting on me to get a job when I get out of here. And also, can you imagine the motivation of the university itself to place these students in careers? Exactly. I mean, there has to be some, obviously, if they get a job and they just don't feel like working. I mean, obviously, there has to be something worked out there. The university can't be responsible for people that just don't want to make the effort. So I don't know how you work that out, but I can imagine the incentive and also the competition would build between universities going forward if they started doing that. Yeah. You know, when you hear strange proclamations from, you know, academics who who don't necessarily believe in connecting this kind of broad-based education to workforce outcomes, Mm. part of the challenge is that they lack visibility into the career trajectories of their learners, right? They don't know the struggle that a recent grad is having as they are dealing with underemployment or not getting, not being able to translate their skills into something that an employer desires. And so that lack of visibility pointing right to it is if somehow the skin in the game is tied to that learner getting a job, they are going to care about what happens after Mm -hmm. that person gets their diploma. Right. But right now, there's really no incentive for a faculty member to care about what happens after graduation. Exactly. And I can also see them working much more diligently with companies out there to say, what is it you guys need? What is it you want? What do you see four years from now? What do you see eight years from now? So we can be preparing our students for that. I 
I mean, I'm sure they're doing that to an extent, but I'm sure if money was at stake, <laughs> motivation would go way up as it yeah. always does. Yeah. So I wasn't able to to put this into the book, but one of the sort of most fascinating interviews I did was with a professor at Harvard. He's a physics professor named Eric Mazur. And he he's kind of the person who's invented the idea of peer-to-peer instruction within the classroom. So okay. he realized very quickly that he was up there, you know, writing out some equations and a learner asked a question. And it was clear that she didn't understand from way, 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 way back anything that what he was going on, right? So he realized, okay, because I'm the expert here, I don't know what it's like to engage with these issues as a first time being exposed to physics learner would be. So what he did was inside the classroom, they would come in, they would do some work in that kind of flipped classroom style where he would realize, okay, clearly there's this one concept that nobody's understanding. So what he would do is he would have the kids, the students kind of move from pair to pair, and they would just find a new person to talk to, to explain that new idea. Mm -hmm. And over time, the most sort of the best explanation would kind of rise to the top because the people who didn't fully understand would understand from their peer who just realized how to do this Mm -hmm. and, and would, and would kind of get engaged and realize, oh, that's the right way to think about this. And what he realized is his students could teach one another better than he could teach yeah. them. Wow. And the outcomes were profound. Like the the sort of the ways in which these learners were performing by the end of the semester. I mean, he measured them from semester to semester and it was undeniable kind of this connection, but it required him to fully reform the way that he normally did his lecture-based model. Mm. And when I asked him, why aren't more of the faculty at Harvard doing what you're doing? Because clearly it works, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, why in the world would they go through all this work when what they are doing today is what is rewarded by the promotion process? There's no incentive for them Mm. to stop lecturing because this is the way they get promoted, right? Everything, it it always kind of boils down to the incentive structure, but there is no incentive for them for them to care about what happens beyond that lecture. And again, like as we think about those outcomes, you know, we don't, a faculty member rarely understands what happens to their learners 20 years out from now. They don't understand that that employment, that underemployment crisis kind of persists for 10 years at times, right? Yeah. So this is that, that real challenge of, you know, why would we even consider doing all this hard work when the model is such that we get rewarded in this way? Yeah, it's terrible. You know, we touched upon what universities could do to improve the system and what some employers could do. How about we address Congress or the Senate? What can they do from their end that would really make a change? So I I actually just wrote a piece on this about, uh, so Marty Walsh, who's the Boston mayor, uh, was selected as the new Department of Labor head or the new Secretary of Labor. So I wrote a piece kind of urging Marty Walsh to really think about investing in a better data infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So in the book, I talk about this concept of an ecosystem, right? And it's not it's not a term that I use willy-nilly. The whole purpose of thinking about an ecosystem is thinking about the root structure that connects living things, right? In a natural ecosystem, it's phenomenal when you actually look at some of the research about these mycelium networks, which are like these fungal mushroom networks yeah. that connect the roots of trees, right? And yeah, 
the Aspens in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Like 47,000 trees are connected by one root system, right? In Pando. Mm-hmm. And and even among different trees, they can actually send nutrients to one another and communicate. It's this amazing sort of intelligence that exists because there is this connective tissue, this connective thread. And when we think about all the data sets that exist among all our various silos across all of our different institutions and structures and workforce investment boards, companies, everyone is speaking a different language, right? We don't have this kind of shared data pool where where we can start getting smarter and start leveraging those insights to make better sorts of resource allocations and prioritizing different pathways for learners. We can do some of that work today and I've been part of different efforts that do this. And I've read lots of researchers work who, who are on the sides trying to stitch together this data. It does not need to be this difficult. Uh, yeah. It does not need to be so hard for us to get an understanding of what works and what doesn't, right? When someone takes a non-credit course anywhere at any university, we don't track any of it. So we don't understand what that extra skilling up actually leads to in terms of outcomes. And so the the real, like, we can't do any of this ecosystem work until we kind of build in that foundational layer of data infrastructure. And that's where the federal government, I think, can play a huge role and spur employers and agencies to connect that data and to break down some of those walls. I like your idea of being able to get to the point someday where you can put into maybe it's this database we're talking about right here as a person looking for a job or a career, you can put in your skill set, you can enter it and it can tell you back what types of jobs that you know you would be qualified for and where they are. So instead of just saying, well, I, you know, I do this one job, say I work at Target, like your example earlier, really, you know, maybe I can move over to Walmart, but I mean, you know, <laughs> they don't think, <laughs> they don't think how, no, maybe I could work at a hedge fund, you know, <laughs> or, yeah. right. Because you don't see that in your purview. So to be able to enter your what you do and have it spit back. Well, these are the types of jobs that you're qualified for would be an amazing tool to have for everybody. It's that concept of transferable skills, Mm -hmm. right? We want to believe that there are skills that we can port over from one area to another, but we don't actually have the mechanisms to do that. So Mm -hmm. when, you know, retail and hospitality just got completely decimated in the pandemic, the reason why people were stuck was because they had no way to say, even though I've been in retail, I can do this other work over here, right? In marketing and PR, we just don't have that kind of, that way of connecting learners to understand, no, you, you can actually do this work. Um, We need some sort of reliable source that. Yep. Cause we're not good at envisioning a sort of a horizon of opportunities ahead. We are quite narrow when we think about what we might be able to achieve next. And it's, and I actually started out my career after academia working with service members. And it was fascinating to kind of see the way in which their immediate assumption was, oh, I better get a a job in policing or security, right? Because it's sort of, that was the clearest way to kind of transition back into the civilian market. Mm -hmm. But it happens across the board. We lack the confidence to say, no, I'm going to actually try to go this direction. I'm going to move from sales to marketing. And part of this is because employers never validate the commonality, those transferable skills that really do connect these domains. 
Right. And it may not be competence. It may be just lack of knowledge, awareness. Mm-hmm. Something else I just wanted to touch on quickly. I know we're running out of time, so we need to wrap up. But a big portion of the student loan debt right now is held by students that did not complete their degree. And, you know, when we get back to government and the skin in the game and they're having a hard time paying back these student loans, again, is there anything that can be done in this area, do you think? Or do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I think actually the Biden administration is going to try to pursue some student loan debt forgiveness up to 50000 for those who have federal. It won't cover people who've taken out private loans, I believe, right? But no. still, yeah. it, it'll help the people who are hurting the most, which is important, right? The folks who, who are... Yeah, it seems like it's holding the economy back a bit. They're reluctant to buy homes or start a business. Mm-hmm. And yet, I mean, and who knows why they weren't able to complete the degree, but I'm guessing money. A lot of reasons, yeah. A lot of reasons, yeah. money, time. and I but. mean, heart, part of it is, right, that for a great majority of those learners who are not 18 to 24-year-olds, who have a lot of that kind of life that gets in the way, as soon as they hit a mm-hmm. single road bump, it makes it nearly impossible to continue on that synchronous route or, right, that kind of one linear trajectory. So those kinds of um, relief ideas, I think, are are powerful, partly just because I think the the Department of Education has sort of inadvertently become like a bank in terms of, of yeah. student loan debt. So yeah, I think there are different levers that that they're that they're seeking to pull, which is which is great. Right. It sounds like the Biden administration needs to hire you on, Michelle, and <laughs> get some help over there. Yeah. Um, I have one just kind of general question. So for people that are listening that might be struggling out there wanting to get that next job or figure out how to do it, they don't have the time or money. I know things aren't in place yet that you'd love to see in place to help these people, but is there any tip you could give them or some place to get started? or maybe just even one resource that's out there that they could look into? Yes. So for people who are really kind of immediately hit by the pandemic, um, Mm -hmm. there are resources like the, uh, if you go to skillup.org, there are a couple of um, initiatives that are going on where really trying, I'm on the board of this group where it's, it's very much geared toward how do we get the 40 million people who are struggling today into better pathways. And it's that idea of better career navigation, some targeted education and a connection to an employer. So that's one resource that I would maybe point to in terms of sort of more sort of markers to, to look at when they're evaluating different programs. I think it's really important for any job seeker or learner to look at these different programs and understand how are they actually articulating the outcomes of their participants and graduates? Because the mm. ones that are transparent and clear about the outcomes and, you know, 60% of our folks go to this company and 20% go to these different jobs. Right. If they are actually tracking those outcomes, it is clear that those are the people who are invested in making sure that that learning translates into job attainment, right? Mm-hmm. And there's also other indicators like do they actually, it's not about sometimes just getting that job. The job itself may not be the holy grail, but how do they actually kind of coach you through the first six or 18 months? Because there are groups that do this kind of work to make sure you're landed well. There are others that are experimenting with really interesting kinds of outsourced apprenticeship models where they will hire you first. That that learning provider will actually hire you first as an apprentice and then kind of ship you out to different companies to get practice at 
how you actually do this in the real world with real companies, companies get to evaluate you as a potential hire. And it de-risks the whole hiring process for employers where it becomes easier for them to say, oh, I want this person. They yeah. can clearly do what I need them to do, right? So clear connections to work-based learning opportunities, apprenticeships, and that kind of outcomes data. And then finally, it's that subject that we talked about earlier of interdisciplinary learning. How are these groups that you're thinking about going to talking about not only your technical skills building that they're going to help with, but how are they going to broaden your human skills, right? How are they going to help you with your workforce competencies, those kind of baseline human skills like empathy, judgment, right? Um, Emotional intelligence, collaboration, teamwork. How do they talk about that kind of balance of human and technical skills? Because one or the other is not the way you want to go. It has to be both and. So how are they talking about that kind of approach? That's Um, so important. Yeah. That human plus that you talk about. Exactly. Yep. And the reason, again, you were mentioning in the book, one of the reasons that's so important is because, yes, we do have robots and AI and things out there that are replacing some jobs that's granted, but they don't have the empathy. They don't have the human skills that are still very much needed. So you need, yeah, you need the technical and the human (laughs) and the empathy and the social skills. So you need it all, folks. Yeah. (laughs) We have a lot of career coaches, career counselors, practitioners that listen to this program. Do you have any specific recommendations for this audience that they can do to help people they're working with? Yeah. So for all the career counselors out there, (laughs) you know, first of all, kudos to you for the incredible work that you do. And it's also really hard. I know on many campuses, it can feel like a marginalized position, right? It it can literally feel on the outskirts of a campus where most learners don't even know where that office exists um, Mm -hmm. because it comes only at the tail end of a university experience. I think the universities that will thrive in the future are the ones that will actually really start to marry the academic advising with the career coaching and not see them as separate, but really kind of inextricably tied, right? Because I think the data we see today is that learners are struggling. You know, even newly minted grads from prestigious universities, they are struggling to make it into a job that actually requires those college credentials in the first place. So how do we make sure that you know, it's not that the learner needs to know exactly what they want to do when they start, but how do we make sure we embed opportunities along the way where, say, someone who wants to pursue the liberal arts, we don't dissuade them from that. We actually just make sure that they understand, hey, if you're going to go into psychology, just know that you can't actually leverage that degree unless you actually get a master's degree in most cases, right? I think there's some learners who think I'm going to become a therapist because I'm really good at listening to my friends, or I really love this pursuit. It's wonderful, but they need to understand like what is entailed in that pathway so that they can make the strongest decision before they select that major. And again, it's not about saying I need to know exactly the earnings outcome of this major, but we do actually now have very strong data that shows us how clearly majors matter in the labor market, right? Mm -hmm. And I think learners need to just understand that, you know, if you do move into Homeland Security or physical health, 
that your underemployment rates are, are actually higher, right? Just know that. But if, if you know that going in, you can actually start to acquire some of those technical skill sets that employers are seeking so that you can help with that translation process once you graduate. So it is this really incredible coordination that needs to take place where we're giving our learners a fuller view of what's ahead not to change their minds, but to make sure, because some of these skills building activities require time, right? Like if you want to become a really good journalist, you can't just be a great writer. You actually need to learn how to use Tableau and you can't learn how to use Tableau in a week, right? right? We need to build those in along the way. So I think that's the key is, is how do we make sure We're providing this kind of nice understanding of what is available, but also the different things that will help them smoothen that transition later. Excellent. Thank you, Michelle. And can you just please tell our listeners how to get in touch with you if they'd like to? And also, I assume they can find your book pretty much anywhere. I mean, I downloaded mine on my (laughs) Kindle, (laughs) on my iPad via my Kindle app through Amazon. But uh, Perfect. Yeah, it is is on all the major booksellers, uh, wherever Mm -hmm. you like to buy your books, uh, you should be able to find it. And if anyone wants to reach out, they can always find me on Twitter or LinkedIn at RWMichelle, or they can go to my website, which is really easy. It's riseanddesign.io. There you go. All right. And that will all be in the show notes. So if people didn't jot that down or you're driving somewhere or cleaning your kitchen, we, uh, <laughs> you can look it up later. All right. So Michelle, we end our podcast. I don't know if you know this, but or if Meg told you, but we do a rapid fire just to have a little fun at the end of a podcast. 10 questions, not nothing hard or challenging. Don't worry. <laughs> I did not know about this. <laughs> <Yeah>. Surprise. <laughs> okay. Perfect. All right. You ready? Mm-hmm. First car. If you had a car, first car. It was a black Ford probe. There you go. <laughs> Mine was a blue Ford Escort. <laughs> Mine was a stick shift. I was really proud so that I knew how to drive stick. Mine yeah. too. Yeah, there <laughs> we go. Bobby and I both took our driver's uh, test in using a stick, stick shift. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 Well, that's all we had at our house. You yeah. Know, so that's all we felt had. like we had a choice. <laughs> okay. As a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? An artist. An artist. So are you artistic? I am actually. I I um I paint, I do oil painting and um I design, like I've designed spaces. Nice. Wow. <laughs> See, multi-talented over there. Okay. <laughs> if you were invited, would you go on SpaceX? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I when like what year is this? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> you can pick ten years. You can't quantify it now. Come yeah, on. right. <laughs> um, I just watched Apollo thirteen again. So oh, no, no. Also. So yeah, not feeling it right now. I, 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 I get that. Okay, uh, weirdest food you've ever eaten? Ooh, I had um, rattlesnake once and. I didn't know I was eating it, but (laughs) I guess maybe a wild boar. Oh, okay. Yeah. Haven't had that. In Africa. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Scary stuff right there. Okay. Most used app on your phone. Mm, Let's see. Probably right now, 
Twitter, unfortunately. Yeah, that's all right. We, Meg and I are on Twitter quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I don't even lie. know what I'm doing on there. Yeah, um. I know. Probably wasting our time, but we're on it anyway. All right. A place you would love to visit? Bali. Mm, me too. I saw yeah. a National Geographic. I had a, a magazine when I was a child and it had all these beautiful pictures yeah. of Bali and that's imprinted on my brain. Yeah. One of those um, huts out on the water. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to. All right. all right. What was your worst style choice? <laughs> you mean like fashion style? Fashion, choice? hair. I don't know. Um, probably cutting my hair almost to like a pixie cut. Yeah. Um, yeah, yep. where everyone thought I was a man. Oh. <laughs> Shoot, that's not what I was going for. <laughs> no, I, mean, I missed that. Yeah, I've had some bad haircuts myself. Yeah. So. All right. Oh, yes. Is there something you can cook or bake with confidence? Oh, yes. I can cook, um, I can bake chocolate chip cookies yeah. without thinking about it. That's important. That's an important <laughs> skill that I think everybody should have. <laughs> I, I can do that too. I That was like when we were growing up, my mom would leave us a list of chores and that would always be on my list for some reason. Bake, Bake some chocolate, chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. Like, All right. <laughs> I think I'm a chocolate chip cookie snob. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, really? It has to I be. Love, I love cookies. And uh -huh. so. <laughs> uh -huh. Me too. Anything with chocolate, really. Okay. How do you de-stress? I eat. <laughs> Chocolate chip cookies. Obviously, I cook up a batch of cookies. Okay, you, know what, yeah. you know what is the thing that makes me happiest is actually eating Korean food just because mm. I grew up on it. So if yep. I just the first taste, it just melts everything away. Yeah. Brings you home right there. Mm -hmm. We had okay. a niece that spent a fair amount of time in South Korea and she just fell in love with the food. Too. Yeah. Give me yeah. some kimchi. <laughs> 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 okay. If you had to sing karaoke, if you had to, what song would you pick? <laughs> I think I would probably pick Counting Crows, Mr. Jones. Oh, oh wow. I love it. I love <laughs> that can't it. be easy to sing, I don't think. <laughs> I listened to, you know, it was in my Ford Probe. I had a CD <laughs> player and, you know, it's hard to switch out the CDs all the time. Yep. So it would just sit in there. So I would always play it on me. See how these things tie together, the car, the chocolate yeah. chip cookies, the stress. Okay. <laughs> all right. Last question. Oh, wait, that was 10. I had, a, I have 11 on my list. I don't know oh, why. Wow. Well, well, we're extra you know, punishment. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I won't, I'll ask you the 11th, but I can edit it out if you don't know the answer. Okay. <laughs> have you seen Hamilton? And if so, what's your favorite song? I have seen Hamilton. Uh, my favorite song is probably Burn. Oh, yeah. That that's is, that's just such a, oh. just, you hear my it heart is, just fell to the floor yeah. when you said yeah. that. You probably heard it. It's like, you know. <laughs> I feel so sad that we don't have those letters. You know? I know. I know. I know. That is sad. All right. Well, thank you, Michelle. You did a great job on the 11 <laughs> <laughs> rapid fire questions. He has set a record. That was you, fun. New, new record. Things, college and career. 
rapid fire record. (laughs) But Michelle, it was great to have you on. We could have talked all day. Thank you guys so much for having me. It was so much fun. And thanks so much for doing this really important work. I hope people are out there listening and putting some of your ideas into action really needs to happen. Yeah, hopefully, yeah, the right people are listening that can implement this. I actually think you're part of the solution. You're one of the right people. I hope your voice gets heard. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you so much. Forward it on to those people that can make a difference. So, Yeah. yeah, thanks for coming on and have a great day. You too. Oh my gosh, it was so wonderful to have Michelle on. I'm so inspired by her work and just so glad there are people out there doing this important work. Yeah, me too. I think it's incredible work. It's, and as you say, so important. I'm just wondering how long it's going to take before we can go from these ideas, these great ideas Michelle has and others, and actually you know, put them into practice so it's accessible to everyone. Sooner the better. Absolutely. Well, just want to once again, thank you, Michelle, for coming on our podcast. We were so honored to have you. And uh, thank you all of our listeners for tuning in and sticking with us this long. We really appreciate it. Yeah. And if you can take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, um, comment, review, any of those things help us tremendously and helps us get this podcast out to more people. So we appreciate any help you can give us in that direction. Okay. Sounds good. And we'll see you all soon. We have some other wonderful podcasts in the wings. So stay tuned. For sure. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Have a great week. And this has been an Academic and Career Advising Services production.